Hello and welcome to Of Sound Mind and Music. Now today I'm joined here by my buddy Zach Beamish. I'm going to be teaching him a bit about the Hurrian Hymn Number no. Six, which is the first known recorded music piece. Recorded being etched into a tablet, but that's essentially close enough and about as technologically advanced as floppy disks are now. So, essentially, the focus of this episode is to go super in-depth about how the first piece of written music that we can recover in history relates to humans, it relates to civilization, what did it cause? And honestly, I don't think you're ready for what's about to come next. It holds way more significance than you think. Now, before we can really go further into detail about what the hurry in him is and what it had as an effect on people, we kind of have to go all the way back into the ancient Sumerians. So, the Sumerian city-states rose to power during the prehistoric Ubaid and Uruk periods, which is what they called their uh, early dynastic periods. Uh, but Sumerian written history reaches back to 27th century BC, which is stupid long ago. But it remains obscure until around 23rd century BC, where the language of the written record becomes easier to decipher, and archaeologists can read contemporary records and inscriptions to understand fully what the Sumerians went through, what they documented, what they understood as truth. Now, the Akkadian Empire was the first state that successfully united larger parts of Mesopotamia in the early 23rd century. The Earth Three Kingdom, which was similarly united parts of northern and southern Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia ended in the face of Amorite incursions at the beginning of the second millennium BC. The Amorite dynasty of Isin persisted about until circa 1700 BC, until Mesopotamia was united under Babylonian rule. So, essentially, their culture, their social and family life, they really enjoyed pottery. They typically wore more indigenous-style clothing, like they wore feathered headdress. Beds, stools, chairs were used totally with carved legs resembling those of an ox. Uh, there were fireplaces, fire altars, Knives, drills, wedges, and an instrument that looks like a saw were known, but some of these tools were used only during war. So like bows, arrows, daggers, spears, but not swords were employed in war. They never used swords. Tablets were used for writing purposes. Daggers with metal blades and wooden handles were worn, whereas the ones with copper were hammered into plates and necklaces or collars were made of gold. Now, what really gets into the music part is they were incredible artists. So they not only did much visual art, but they also ended up creating some of the earliest music known to man. All right, so if they played music, how would they play the music? A lot of stuff like a piano wasn't invented at the time. The ancient Sumerians were the ones who essentially, like their most famous masterpieces were the lyres of Ur which were considered to be the world's oldest surviving stringed instruments right now. They were discovered by Leonard Woolley when the Royal Cemetery of War was excavated between 1922 and 1934. That's essentially where their music came from, was like lyres, stringed instruments that they could make with all of the sinew and all of the, uh, the bones and stuff that they could make. So the Royal Cemetery of Ur was where they found it. It's modern day Southern Iraq. So 1922-1934 is when it started. Uh, the British Museum and the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Philly, uh, the British Museum, and a bunch of these finds are now 
in museums, such as the Iraq Museum, the British Museum, and the Baghdad Museum. So it started in 1922 by digging trial trenches in order for the archaeologists to get an idea of the layout. Um, uh, it was found in southern Iraq. It remained abandoned after the Euphrates River changed its course more than two millennia ago. So they dug into the surface, recovered graves, some of which had royal names inscribed on them. Uh, he began the excavation on 1922 for the Brits and the Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. However, the actual discovery of the cemetery and royal tombs was four years after the excavation started. The large cemetery was in operation for at least three centuries during the second half of the third millennium BC. Now, this is all leading into somewhere. So music played one of the most central roles in ancient Mesopotamian religion. In the old Babylonian period, when music was performed as a part of a religious ceremony, the practitioners known as known in Sumerian as the Gala priests sang in dialect of Sumerian called Emesal. There were two types of Emesal prayers, the Balag and the Ershema, named after the instruments used in their performance, the Balag and Shem respectively. In some depictions of religious festivals, musicians were accompanied by dancers, jugglers, and acrobats. They always had to have some form of visual art to go alongside their auditory art. That's how the Sumerians have been since the beginning of time. So, the Akkadian word for music, nigitu, also meant joy and merriment, uh, well illustrated by a seal in the Louvre, showing a peaceful scene of a shepherd playing a flute to his flock. Music was a normal part of social life in Mesopotamia and was used in many secular contexts. So many played important roles in funerals among royalty and was also depicted in relation to sports and sex. Mesopotamian love songs, which represented the distinct genre of music, nevertheless shared in common features with religious music. The use of MSL by women singers extended into wedding songs as well, but over time these singing roles were taken over by male performers, at least among the elite. In the early Dynastic Three period, music was depicted at banquets, but the purpose was never very clear as to what they were trying to do. The celebration may have been like a regular calendrical event, such as the New Year's festival, or the occasions might have been extensions of temple practices or celebrations of successful military campaigns. All of that other important stuff to them back in like 2000 BC, which is pretty cool. Would someone ever rise of fame as a result of playing music or creating music at the time? So much like in ancient Egypt, Mesopotamian schools taught music. So active by the 3rd millennium BCE, the schools known as Edubas to the Sumerias were chiefly for educating scribes and priests. Extant clay tablets often record information on students' activities in Edubas and indicate that their examinations include questions on differentiating and identifying instruments, staying technique, and analyzing compositions. Which means, yes, some of them did end up getting popular and famous because they did have to teach. While I haven't really been able to find a specific person who has risen to fame, because otherwise it would have been etched on a tablet somehow, but I don't think the Mesopotamians really thought about how their actions would really want to be understood by people who are living thousands upon thousands of years in the future. So like the texts provide insight to the roles of musicians in society though. So there are two distinct types of musicians known as the gala and the nar. We spoke about the gala earlier. Basically, it was mostly for funeral proceedings and it was for celebration, essentially. Uh, the nar and the gala were both highly regarded and associated with religion and royalty, but the rules differed. The gala was closely associated with temple rituals and it was suggested that the musicologist Piotr Michalski that their job was normally less glamorous and perhaps temporary. Uh, musical instruments associated with gala priests include a small drum, so like a timpani, uh, the apu in Akkadian, and the sistrum or cymbals, although not much is known about these instruments. 
There are hundreds of individual named musicians, such as the Gala musician Ur-Utu, who are known from administrative documents. In some cases, archaeological findings have discovered the homes and family histories of these muse musicians, revealing their high status in society. Gala musicians were associated with the god Enki. With all of that aside, now that we know exactly what music meant to the Mesopotamians, let's get into the Hurrian hymn. So, essentially, it's part of this collection of songs and tablets inscribed in cuneiform on clay tablets. They were called the Hurrian song. So, there is only one tablet which is nearly complete, and it contains the Hurrian hymn to Nikov, also known as the Hurrian cult hymn, or Azaluzi to the Gods, or simply H.6, uh, making it the oldest surviving substantially complete work of notated music in the world. While the composer's names of some of the fragmentary pieces are known, H.6 is an anonymous work. The complete song is one of about 36 hymns in cuneiform writing, placed on fragments of clay tablets excavated in the 1950s from the royal palace at Ugarit, which is present-day Syria, in a stratum dating from the 14th century BC, but is the only one surviving in substantially complete form. The tablet itself contains the lyrics for a hymn to Nikal, a Semitic goddess of the orchards, and instructions for a singer accompanied by a nine-stringed samum, which is a type of harp or more likely a lyre. The hymn was given its first modern performance in 1974, a performance of which the New York Times wrote, this has revolutionized the whole concept of the origin of Western music. While the Hurrian hymn predates several other surviving early works of music, like the Selikos epitaph and the Delphic hymns, by a millennium, its transcription remains controversial. The reconstruction can be found on the internet anywhere. A bunch of people have done recordings of it now since we've been able to decipher what the cuneiform means, what sort of diatonic notation it's using, what scale it's in. I mean, it's not exactly the same form of scale that we would have today, but it's not really all that different. We'll give it a listen in a sec. The hymn itself is written really weird. Like, it's written in a continuous spiral with alternating recto verso sides of the tablet, so it goes on the front of the tablet and the back of the tablet. And then it's followed by Akkadian musical instructions, consisting of interval names followed by number signs. Differences in transcriptions hinge on interpretation of the meaning of these paired signs and a relationship to the hymn text. Babylonian music theory describes intervals of thirds, fourths, fifths, and sixths, but only with specific terms for the various groups of strings that may be spanned in by the hand over that distance within the purely theoretical range of a seven-string lyre. Even though the actual instrument described has nine strings, Babylonian theory had no term for the abstract difference of a fifth or a fourth, only for fifths and fourths between specific pairs of strings. As a result, there are 14 terms in all, describing two pairs spanning six strings, three pairs spanning five, four pairs spanning four, and five different pairs spanning three strings. The name of these 14 pairs of strings from the basis of the theoretical system are arranged by twos in the ancient sources, so string number pairs first, and then the regularized old Babylonian names and translations. So how did they decipher what was on the, on the stone at the time? So essentially, the decipherment of cuneiform started way before we discovered the Hurrian hymns. 
So it really started with the old Persian cuneiform between 1802 and 1836. It was copied from the Achaemenid royal inscriptions from the ruins of Persepolis, with the first and accurate copy being published in 1778 by Karsten Niebuhr. Niebuhr's publication was used by Grotenfend in 1802 to make the first breakthrough, the realization that Niebuhr had published three different languages side by side and the recognition of the word king. The rediscovery and publication of cuneiform took place in the early 17th century, and early conclusions were drawn such as the writing direction, that and the Achaemenid royal inscriptions, and the three different languages with two different scripts. So essentially, 1620, Garcia de Selva Figueroa dated the inscriptions of Persepolis to the Achaemenid period, identified them as Old Persian, and concluded that the ruins were an ancient residence of Persepolis. In 1621, Pietro de la Valle specified that the direction was writing from left to right. In 1762, Jean-Jacques Barthélemy found that the inscription of Persepolis resembled that found on an old brick in Babylon. Karsten Niebuhr made the first copies of the inscriptions in Persepolis in 1778 and settled on three different types of writing, which subsequently became known as the Niebuhr 1, 2, and 3. He was the first to discover a sign for a word division in one of the scriptures. Oluf Gerhard Tischen was the first to list 24 phonetic or alphabetic values for characters in 1798. So basically, it was a huge group effort over a couple hundred years to understand the very basis of this writing. And only then would they have enough information to base their knowledge off of. Then they could start translating it over into musical terms. For the moment, though, I think that's enough ranting about musical history. I think everyone else would agree that now is a great time to end our wonderful episode. Coming up, we will be having some great guests, including the lead singer of Civilian coming in for a little bit of history for rock music. Um, there's going to be metal music as well. There'll be some jazz. There's going to be some contemporary folk music. Whatever it is that you want to hear, let me know and I will do it. Thank you so much for following. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to the channel so that you never miss an upload.